Well, today is uh, part two of a five-part series called Deep Roots, uh, Biblical Foundations of Our Baptist Heritage. And uh, today we look at the second of five convictions that have historically made Baptists what they are. This second conviction is that of the believer's church. And we don't say believers in the possessive sense, not believer apostrophe yes, and that it belongs to a believer, but believers in the plural sense, that the church is made up of believers. I would invite you to open your copies of God's Word to Matthew's Gospel, uh, chapter 16. We're going to begin in verses 13 through 18, and then we're going to do a little bit of a Bible drill today, uh, looking at several other passages of Scripture this morning also. Matthew 16, verses 13 through 18. I think that code enforcement and code enforcement officers may be one of the least appreciated and respected civil departments and civil positions. Nobody really likes when code enforcement shows up to your house when you're planning to build a pergola in the backyard to make sure that everything is built the way that it's supposed to. Wouldn't we, it would just be nice to be able to you know, build things the way we want to build things. Just add that addition onto the back of our house and not have to go through all of the inspections and all of the uh, uh, just reviewing of plans and, and the regular visits from code enforcement people to make sure that everything is put in the right way. After all, why, why can't I just run that electrical wire the way that I want to? Why can't I just run plumbing right next to electricity? Why can't It would just be so much easier. Poor code enforcement officers, every time they show up, they are are never uh, or rarely the people that are happy to be seen by those who are visited by them. But at the end of the day, the job of those in code enforcement is to ensure the safety and the stability of the most important structures of our daily lives. You might think it's convenient and efficient to run that electrical wire right next to that, uh, that, right next to that, that drain in the wall or right next to that plumbing that goes through. But it's really, really bad if you should get a leak in that wall next to that electrical line. You'll set your whole house on fire. What code enforcers do may not be convenient or appreciated by most of us, but what they do is very important. At the end of the day, only what passes code is acceptable for building. And we want that. We want the safety of the structures uh, that we live in. We want safety of, uh, of buildings and edifices that we do business in. We don't want them to come crashing down on our heads. And that is what code enforcement officers help to do. Code enforcement officers make sure that buildings are, are sturdy, are stable, are, are, are built to last. So also, the chief architect and code enforcer of the church, Jesus Christ, makes sure that his church is built to last. And he does this by building it as he sees fit. The conviction of the believer's church that those who, uh, are, 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 those who make up the church of Jesus Christ are believers in Jesus is one of the core foundations that comes from uh, a, a conviction about the authority of God's word. If the church is God's, then he defines how it is built. And so the main idea that we're exploring or seeing, first from Matthew 16 and then from other passages of Scripture today, is this, that only those who are members of Jesus' church should be members of the local church. Only those who are members of Jesus' church should be members of the local church, the believer's church, this historic distinctive of Baptist faith. More than anything, friends, we must come to discern what the church is from what it is not, what makes it Jesus's church from what does not make it that. We need to grapple with whether we can say if we are rightly members of it. 
Would you stand with me as we read from God's Word, Matthew 16, verses 13 through 18. A pivotal moment in the life of Jesus and His ministry among His disciples. Matthew, the Gospel writer and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, When Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, He asked His disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Jesus said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. The believer's church. Only those who are members of Jesus' church being members of the local church. We see, we're going to see this morning several ways that Jesus builds his church or aspects of how Jesus builds his church. And the first is this, that Jesus builds his church as a community of confessors. He builds his church as a community of confessors. Here in Matthew 16, we have this unique moment in Jesus' ministry and, and a pivotal one for the church, for the assembly of the redeemed. Here, surrounded by his disciples, knowing that his life is speeding now toward the cross, Jesus asks his disciples who people say that he is. And he gets several popular uh, uh, answers or responses that they have heard as they've gone about. Some think he's John the Baptist, some one of the other prophets, some Elijah. But then he turns the question to them. Not who do people say that I am, but who do you say that I am? The only one to speak up is the one who always speaks up first, sometimes for good, sometimes for bad. Simon Peter, who has foot and mouth disease, he always seems to get out in front of his skis with things that he says. But on this one occasion, Simon Peter nails it. The same scene is uh, uh, recounted for us also in Mark chapter 8 and Luke chapter 9. Peter's response is essentially the same in all three of these Gospels. You are the Christ. That means you are the Messiah. You are the promised redeemer of Israel and the world that God said through his prophets that he would send. Jesus' response assures Simon Peter and the disciples that this knowledge, the knowledge that Jesus is the Christ, only comes from God's revealing. This is not something that human wisdom brings about, but that God has revealed to Peter. Jesus then affirms this disciple's nickname. He calls him, his name is Simon, but he calls him here Peter. The Greek word is Petros. It means rock. And he says, on this rock, using the word Petra, which is the, the word for a, a generic rock, he would build his church. Now, the Roman Catholic Church has seen this passage as defending the authority and the fallibility of Peter as the first pope and for all of Peter's successors as well, that Peter is the, the foundation of the church. But we see in the course of Acts and in other places in Scripture, particularly in Galatians, where Peter has to be corrected for wrong thinking for wrong ideas, for leading wrongly in the church. And so the idea that this passage is setting up Peter as the first infallible pope is, is inherently flawed. He is not so. At the same time, the wordplay between Peter and rock, between his name, Petros, and a rock, Petra, still seems to have Peter as the rock that Jesus builds his church on. Peter's not the foundation of the faith. Jesus is the cornerstone, we know that. But Peter will be the 
rock in the sense that he is the first stone that will be laid among billions more who would join him in confessing that Jesus is the Christ. The church that Jesus builds out of those who have come to confess him as Christ and as Lord is not limited only to those who confessed him in the day of the apostles or even to the present day in 2020, but to all who have confessed him after Peter and all who will confess Jesus as Christ and continue to do so until he returns. Jesus builds his church as a community of confessors, as a community of people who say out loud and believe in their hearts, Jesus is Lord. The conviction of the believer's church implies this, that every member of the church of Jesus Christ confesses him as Lord. Every member of the church of Jesus Christ confesses him as Lord. It is critical for us to note that this is the entry to the church of Jesus Christ. Here in Albuquerque, New Mexico, or anywhere else around the world, if someone is to be a part of the assembly of believers in Jesus, they must confess him as Lord. Jesus said in John 14, 6, you know this verse, that no one comes to the Father except through me. So also no one is a member of the global and timeless church of Jesus that spans time and space and history unless they first come to him as Lord and Christ. Now this means that individual churches do not get to define what a Christian is, right? If Jesus is the one who builds his church, Stephen is not the one who gets to set the definition for what a Christian is. Neither do do denominations of Christians get to determine what a Christian is. Whether they're as small as many of the flavors of Baptist churches are around the world or as large as the Roman Catholic Church. The church of Jesus Christ belongs to Jesus Christ. And he has declared for all time that his church will be a community, will be an assembly, will be a family of those who confess him as Lord and Christ. Turn with me to John chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, as we see second, that Jesus builds his church through the new birth of believers. He builds his church as a community of confessors, and he builds his church through the new birth of believers. John chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, go this way. You should see them on the screen behind me. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Here in John 3, we have this wonderful explanation by Jesus of how someone can enter, how someone can see the kingdom of God. Now here, the church is not explicitly mentioned. You probably noticed that the word church is not there. But I think the connection between the kingdom of God and the church is clear. If Jesus Christ is king and the kingdom is his and all who enter it do as he says, then the kingdom is the church. The way that someone enters the kingdom of God and the way that someone enters the church of Jesus Christ is the same. It is by being born again, by being regenerated. Now, Nicodemus, this Pharisee, this expert in the Jewish law, struggles with this, obviously so. How can a man be born when he is old? 
He's obviously missing the point that Jesus is making, but his struggle does not make what Jesus has said any less true. Anyone who wishes to enter the kingdom of God as one who belongs to Jesus must go from spiritual death to spiritual life. They must be born again. Paul the Apostle explains how this happens in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. I'll just read a few of these verses here. Paul begins by saying to the Ephesian church, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Verse 4 of Ephesians 2 is amazing. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Here in this letter to the Ephesian church, the Ephesian body of believers, Paul reminds them of this very concept of going from spiritual death to spiritual life. In their previous sinful and disobedient state, he says that they were, they were that we all were, dead in our trespasses and, sin, trespasses and sins. Say that five times fast. But that by the gift of God's grace, we were made alive. We were born again in spirit as we came to faith in Christ. This sounds a lot like John chapter 3, verse 16, words which even we sang this morning, doesn't it? That God loved the world in this way that he sent his one and only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. The new birth does not stop at internal changes. It's not just a spiritual thing, though. It moves us to external displays of this internal change. Jesus builds his church uh, in those who are born again by going from spiritual death to spiritual life and who have shown that they have been born again uh, affirmed by believers' baptism. In Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, Jesus tells his disciples, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. Make other confessors that I am the Christ, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. Baptism is the first display of obedience to Jesus in the life of someone who has been born again. Baptism is a a drama. It is a display of one who has died to sin as they are immersed underwater and been made to live a new life as they are brought up, uh, showing that they have been born again by the Spirit's work in them. Jesus affirms and intends for us to affirm someone has been born again as they confess Him as Lord and as they are baptized as a demonstration of God's work in their lives. Now, this is not a new thing, and this is not just a Baptist thing. This is a church thing, and this is a church thing that began in the first days of the church, literally the first days of the church. Look with me at Acts chapter 2, verses 36 through 41. If you have your Bibles open, you can flip there quickly. If not, listen to what the Word says. Right after Peter has, on the day of Pentecost, preached the first Christian sermon, pointing people to Jesus. He says this in Acts 2.36, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. That's how he ends his sermon. Verse 37 says, Now when they, when the audience heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the, of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? In light of the fact that Jesus is the Christ, what do we do? And Peter said to them, 
Repent, which means turn from your sins. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourself from this crooked generation. And so those who received his word, those who repented of sins, were baptized in the name of Jesus as they trusted in Christ, were born again. They were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. The command to baptize new believers is what the first people to hear the gospel preached by Peter on Pentecost hear and do. When Peter declares that Jesus is both Lord and Christ, the people want to know, how do I respond to this news? Peter does not say, be born again, but he does say that they can receive the same Holy Spirit, the Spirit which causes new life which is a promise of God to those that he calls to himself, if only they turn from their sin, affirming that Jesus is the Christ, and be baptized to publicly declare their death to sin and new life in Jesus. This conviction about believers' baptism is something that those who have pursued God's word steadfastly over the centuries have, it's a conviction that they have come to over and over and over again. A conviction that some have come to even out of other denominational influences. On this very day, November 1st, 1812, a missionary by the name to, to India by the name of Luther Rice, who sailed from the uh, continental United States to India on a boat with Adoniram and Ann Judson, was baptized in Calcutta, India. Now, Luther Rice was already a professing believer of Jesus before he left as a missionary to India. But on the ship ride from the continental United States to, uh, to India, he and Adoniram Judson, upon studying the Scripture, saw over and over and over again that those who were baptized were those who had been born again, that those who had followed Jesus in the waters of baptism were those that had already confessed him out loud as Lord and Christ. Now, being Congregationalists, Luther Rice and Adoniram Judson had been baptized as infants or sprinkled as infants, but in studying the Word, committing themselves to the Word of God, they came to see that those who are baptized are those who have confessed belief in Jesus. And so, being convinced of this, knowing that they had been born again and wanting to be affirmed as believers the right way, wanting to be obedient to Jesus and all that He says, when they arrived in Calcutta, India, they were baptized. Jesus builds his church through the new birth of believers, bringing them from spiritual death to spiritual life, affirmed by believers' baptism. And this leads us to know that every member of the church of Jesus Christ has been born again. Every member of the church of Jesus Christ has been born again. Now, hear what I'm not saying. I am not saying that every member of X and such Baptist church or X and such Lutheran church or X and such Presbyterian church has been born again. But every every member of the church of Jesus Christ has been born again. This does not mean, friends, that every person that has been dunked underwater on a Sunday morning has been born again. It is possible to go through the motions without actual, any, any actual spiritual change inside of you. And this was the protest of Baptists uh, against those that had sprinkled infants in the church, calling it baptism. Because the New Testament so consistently ties baptism to public confession that Jesus is the Christ and that profession to being born again by faith in the person and work of Jesus. And since infants cannot verbally profess faith, any such baptism of an infant is not really a New Testament baptism. 
For that matter, dear friends, no adult or child baptism can really be called baptism rightly if the person baptized has not been born again. This was a major concern of early Baptists, that they might actually give false assurance, false affirmation of salvation to someone by baptizing them if they had not really been regenerated, if they've not really given testimony to new birth by faith in Jesus. And so for much of the first centuries of Baptist history, people younger than 15 or 16 years of age were hardly ever considered ready for baptism because professing faith in Jesus, they knew, must be intentional. It must be uncoerced. It needs to be a voluntary declaration of the one being baptized. Hear me, friends. And those of you who have children, my faith in Jesus Christ cannot cause my daughters to be born again. There is no salvation by proxy. Only the Holy Spirit can do this by awakening their hearts to see the truth of who Jesus is and to move them to declare it willingly, lovingly, obedient. Jesus is Christ. Now listen, baptism is not a lifeless religious rite for us to go through either. It's a declaration of allegiance to Christ. Baptism is a declaration of war against the effects of sin and the influence of Satan in your life. It's not just a fun thing that we do together. It has real spiritual significance. And at the same time, it doesn't matter how many times you've walked down an aisle, repeated a prayer, been dunked in water by a church or by a pastor, if you have not been born again, you are not a part of the church of Jesus Christ because the church of Jesus Christ is only made up of those who have been born again. Now, in saying all this, I know that I may be causing some of you to ask yourself the question, am I born again? How can I know if I've been born again? And the answer to this question is simple. Friend, consider your life, your heart for a moment, and ask yourself and answer whether you have come to believe that Jesus is the Son of God who died for your sins and rose again. Have you come to see your need of Jesus to save you from your sin? Have you trusted him with all your faith as that Savior? Have you confessed Jesus publicly in front of others to an assembled body of believers that Jesus is Lord? Are you living each day in a way that gives evidence to that confession? Do you really care to grow in maturity and obedience to Jesus? Because that's part of what it means to be a disciple. That's what disciples do. If so, dear friend, the answer to all of these is yes then you have the promise of God's word that you have been born again. This is good news. We can know if we have been born again. Is my faith in Christ? Do I see my need for him as a savior? Do I, do, have I confessed him publicly to others? Do I long to live for him each day and help others to grow in maturity and obedience to him as well? If the answer is yes to all of those, praise God, you've been born again. The only remaining question is whether or not you have made that spiritual reality public through believer's baptism. Have you affirmed and been obedient to Jesus to the point of showing, I have been born again. My faith is him by being baptized in obedience to him. Now, on hearing this this morning, friends, uh, some of you may be going, I need to do that. Uh, I believe all those things. I've never been baptized, though. I've never actually said Jesus is Lord publicly in front of other people, but I've been living this way. I've been believing this way. I've never, never, never done anything about it publicly, though. This morning is your opportunity to do so. This morning, friend, if you've already begun to trust Jesus, or even now as you're hearing of who Jesus is and what he does in the hearts of those who turn from sin, you want to follow Jesus, you can respond to him with an affirmative yes today, with obedience to him today. 
Now, normally on Sunday mornings after we dismiss, I'll go outside to greet and meet with those uh, as, as we're uh, dismissed from this place. But this morning, I'm going to do something a little bit different. After Pastor Danny comes and gives a benediction, I still have two more sermon points to get to, so hold on. After Pastor Danny comes and gives a benediction and we're dismissed, I'm not going to meet you outside. I'm going to wait in here. I'm just going to wait up here at front. If you need to make a decision about following Jesus as Lord, about confessing him publicly, about being baptized uh, in obedience to your profession of faith and in consistency with the, with the fact that Jesus is Lord. Come talk to me this morning. Don't delay. I'm reserving time just for you this morning who need to respond to Jesus in obedience through baptism. Jesus builds his church as a community of confessors. He builds his church through those who have been born again. And he builds his church among local communities of baptized believers among local communities of baptized believers. Now, Peter writes in his first letter, 1 Peter, to a whole group of churches in what is now modern-day Asia Minor, churches in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, right? all of these different places. And in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 5, this is what he says about believers in all those places, the assemblies of believers in all those places. He says, as you come to him, as you come to Christ, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves are like living stones being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. The way into the church of Jesus Christ throughout all time in history has always been by new birth and through a public testimony of that new birth by baptism. But as the gospel moved in its early days beyond Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the edges of the Roman Empire, believers began meeting in local assemblies, local churches throughout all of the known world. Peter addresses his first letter to several of these churches in Asia Minor. And in speaking to these local groups of believers, he refers to all of them, each of, in their local settings, as living stones built on Christ, the cornerstone of the global church. Very early in church history, local churches, like ours, but in other cities, other towns around the world, were receiving members to their number. We saw there in Acts chapter 2, after Peter's sermon at Pentecost, over 3,000 were added to their number that day. And the way that churches have added, local churches have added to their number, was always by the members' public profession of faith in Jesus and baptism as a follower of him. What we see historically in the first years of the growth of Christianity was, the same, was that the same standard for being a member of the church of Jesus Christ was applied for membership to the local assembly of followers of Jesus in any particular area. The way into the local church is the same way into the church of Jesus Christ, through faith in Him, confession of Him as Lord, and baptism. This baptism is distinctive of the believer's church and the fact that Jesus builds His church among local bodies of believers leads us to say that local church membership must reflect the same standard of membership for the church of Jesus Christ. The roles of First Baptist West Albuquerque should match as closely as we can humanly possible ascertain the role in the Lamb's Book of Life. If Jesus says he'll build his church in the world as a community of those who confess him and have been born again, then it is absolutely subversive. It undermines the cause of Christ for a local church to admit to their membership those who do not believe Jesus or those who have not given confident testimony to their faith in Jesus and evidence of a life with Christ. Now, this does not mean that we do not welcome outsiders to attend our worship for non-believers to be present with us. Of course we do. 
This does not mean that we keep those who do not trust Jesus from studying the Bible with us. We want nothing more. Certainly, this does not keep us from uh, uh, inviting not yet Christians into our homes for prayer and hospitality. Of course we do these things. But Jesus says that the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. The gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Brothers and sisters, following Jesus requires the difficult work of repentance from sin and the difficult work of continued faith in Him. And apart from that, we have no life in Him. Hear me, receiving into local church membership those who do not believe this, those who have not followed Christ this way, is to lie about what it really is to be a Christian. When Pastor Danny and I conduct uh, membership interviews for those that are wanting to join our church. We always ask at least two questions. The first is, tell us how you came to know Jesus as Lord. We want to know that story. We want to hear a confession of faith in Christ and how Christ has changed the heart, changed the life of the one wanting to come to join the church. We ask about their baptism in consistency with that profession of faith as well. And we want to hear the gospel from those that are coming to, hear, uh, coming to, to desire to join our church. Because we know that local church membership must reflect the same standard of membership in the church of Jesus Christ. If only those who are believers and confessors that Christ is Lord enter into his church, we want to protect the testimony of the gospel and the testimony of the body of Christ in our church by making sure that only those who have been born again are members of our church. Now, friend, if you're not a member of our church today, that doesn't mean we don't want you here. We're exceedingly glad that you're here. We like that you share with us in worship, that you hear God's word together. And if you're a confessing follower of Jesus Christ and you want to do gospel work, gospel ministry with us, taking the word of Jesus to the edges of the world and beyond, we want you to partner with us. But we want to make sure first that we're all committed to the same Christ, that we're all believing the same gospel, that all of us who are members are those that we can give confident affirmation to the work of salvation in their lives. Well, fourth and finally, Jesus builds his church as a community of confessors, through new birth, as local communities of professing bodies of believers, for a purpose. He does so in order to affirm, declare, and protect the gospel. We return back to Matthew chapter 16 and read verse 19. There Jesus says, I I tell you, you're Peter on this rock. I'll build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. And then he says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This is a strange passage and I'll just try to sum it up quickly. The keys that bind and loose are an image for the authority that Jesus gives to Peter and to the apostles to affirm the gospel message in their preaching. They are those whose, the apostles are those whose testimony to Christ and explanation of what it is to confess him as Lord sets the standard for the gospel message for all time. Christians who have come to believe that gospel have also been tasked with continuing to affirm that gospel message in our speech and by our lives, to declare that gospel message to those who are yet without Jesus and to protect that gospel message by making sure that nothing taints it that nothing makes it impure, that nothing makes it anything less than the very good news of Jesus Christ. Jesus 
builds his church in order to affirm, declare, and protect the gospel. And we're going to see this a little bit more in the next couple of distinctives related to Baptist distinctives uh, in, in this series. But this morning, I can say this with confidence, that local church membership, being a member of a local church like we here are at First Baptist West Albuquerque, local church membership serves the gospel of Jesus Christ and not the preferences of its members. To be a part of a local body of believers is to serve the gospel of Jesus Christ, not to serve ourselves. Affirming the gospel in our teaching, declaring it to the world, protecting it by calling one another to repent of sin regularly are not what all of us would like to do. We would not necessarily in our flesh prefer to do these things if we're being honest. We often see people in the world affirming by what they teach inside of churches and outside of churches, not that Jesus is Lord, but that you are Lord of your life. We often see Christians and even are tempted ourselves not to declare that Jesus is the Christ because that, that message draws a clear line of distinction between followers of Jesus and those who don't believe. We would really rather not declare that Jesus is the only way because that creates division. Likewise, friends, it's hard really hard to call a brother or sister in Christ to repent of sins that you see in their life. That is a hard thing to do, to protect the gospel. But Christ has not called us as Christians to be happily anonymous believers in a generic God that never confronts our sin. Jesus, the founder of our faith, calls us to confident, public, even counter-cultural confession that He is Lord and I am not, and to demonstrate that by being baptized as a declaration of Holy Spirit-empowered allegiance to Him. Jesus calls us to be known as Christians by the world and by other believers of local churches who live to affirm, declare, and protect the gospel. The distinctive of the believer's church, long held by Baptists, is not about protecting Baptist traditions. It's about defining with clarity what the gospel is from what it isn't, and what and who a Christian is from what a Christian is not. Brothers and sisters, church membership is not first about friendship with like-minded people, though that happens, and it's good that it does. Church membership, though, is first about a common commitment to Jesus Christ and to the ardent protection of the hope that we have in Him as well as the joyous declaration of the way to hope in Jesus to the watching world. And the church of Jesus Christ is made up of members who confess Him as Lord, who have been born again, who rally together in local communities of confessing believers in order to protect, declare, and affirm the gospel. Only those who are members of Jesus' church should be members of the local church. And we do this by His power. We do this for His glory. And we do this in service of the gospel around the world. The believer's church is an absolutely essential part of who we are as Baptists. And we hold to that. Not because we want to protect our church, but because we want to protect the purity, the truth, and the clarity of the gospel of Jesus Christ and what it is to be saved. Friends, let's pray together this morning.